Welcome to Conjuncture. My name is Jordan Camp. I'm really delighted to be here with Dr. Arun Kundani. Arun is an associate of the Transnational Institute in Amsterdam and a public intellectual. He's the author of a number of works, including The Muslims Are Coming and The End of Tolerance. And he's currently completing a new book, Resistance Is Not Enough, Radical Anti-Racism in the Neoliberal Age. Taken together, Arun's work contributes to scholarly and public debates about racial capitalism, Islamophobia, surveillance, and the war on terror in both the US and the UK. I'm really delighted to be speaking with him in his home in Ithaca, New York today about his work on racial capitalism and counterinsurgency. So thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Arun. I really appreciate it. Well, I want to start by talking about your work on the history and theory of racial capitalism. You've published a series of essays, including What is Racial Capitalism, Abolish National Security, and the Racial Constitution of Neoliberalism. And in them, you're drawing out consistent links between racial capitalism, counterinsurgency, and surveillance. And you make the point that the concept emerged in the milieu of radical London in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And so I kind of want to begin there because you've uh, argued that this geographical context is really important. So how did you come to the concept and what is racial capitalism? In England in the late 70s and early 80s, in a particular milieu um, around um, black struggles, around anti-racism, around journals like Race and Class, you get that exact kind of phenomenon around that time and it's about so what's going on there is you've got um you've still got in britain at that time the um the working class movements the labor movements at their full strength more or less um uh they've still got their political clout you've got um the struggles of african and asian and caribbean peoples which is intertwined to some extent with those with those kind of struggles but but has its own particular um, uh, different history and, and impetus as well. You've got the, um, the kind of anti-imperialism of um, kind of washing over Britain with, with exiles from Southern Africa, with people involved in struggles in, uh, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, all kind of you know, coming to Britain and, and being part of this scene. And you've got um, the flow of ideas and, and people and, and, um, and stories from the, the Black Freedom Movement in the US, right? And so it's kind of in this mix, something really interesting happens, right? And it's a mix that's actually more about people who aren't from Britain coming to Britain and all meeting each other in this, you know, place that, that obviously is a hub precisely because of its imperialist history, right? So um, you know, it's in that space that you get um, people like Sivanand and people like Stuart Hall um, I think at the peak of their kind of political and intellectual creativity, um, developing ideas and arguments that for me remain indispensable for thinking about um, racial capitalism, although they don't, neither of them use that term. Um, but for me, you know, I, when I started becoming involved in, um, in that similar kind of work um, in the 90s, I was schooled by, you know, people who'd come from that milieu and, and and um, I was fortunate enough to to kind of learn at their feet, as it were. And um, 
you just take it for granted that this is this is the world that you're in when you're coming through but you know later you realize that actually something quite special was going on there um that you were able to taste a little of um, a, a little bit further down the road um now as i say neither stuart hall or sivan anden are are using the term racial capitalism um, but for me, the term racial capitalism is about a way of trying to think about the relationship between race and class fundamentally. And of course, that relationship between race and class is, the, is you know, one of the central concerns for Sivan Anden and Stuart Hall. Um, people, you know, Stuart Hall is nowadays, um, you know, very well known, I think, in, in academic circles. Sivan Anden, not so much. Back in the you know, back at that time, through the 80s, you know, really into the 90s, and, uh, and uh, in Britain, the two names would have been placed side by side and um, uh, seen as the, the kind of two towering figures in terms of thinking about black struggles, anti-racist struggles in the UK. Uh, uh, Sivan Anden didn't really kind of get picked up and travel as much, uh, mainly because he's not he's not working within a kind of academic setting. But his his work is is certainly you know as e of equal importance for me and I think should be for anyone who's interested in these questions. Now, um, it's in that milieu that, that, that you start to get um, the term racial capitalism, I, f I think, first appears in print in a, in a pamphlet published by the exiles from South Africa who were, who were involved in the anti-apartheid movement, um, you know, we, where in London was one of the hubs for that, um, who, who start to use the term racial capitalism specifically to understand what's going on in South Africa, which, you know, as you know, at the time um, was um, there's kind of two key things about that. One is the the um, the South African struggle against apartheid was one in which the Communist Party of South Africa was, you know, a major force uh, and therefore Marxism was a major intellectual reference. Um, at the same time, Marxism was in its kind of orthodox form, very hard to fit, to, to, to apply to the particular context of apartheid, which, um, you know, to put it very simply, seemed to be not about a confrontation between kind of waged industrial workers on the one hand and owners of capital on the other, which is what you would get if you take the model from volume one of capital, but something that was about a, a system of white supremacy imposed on you know, uh, African populations, right? And the racial antagonism would seem to be central there. So you get this, yeah, I think you get this creativity around the, the challenge of thinking that through. What needs to go from the Marxist orthodoxy in order to, to, to develop Marxism in a way that it can, it can make sense of this particular context? You know, it's like Fanon's um, well-known phrase that Marxism needs to be stretched if it's going to um, be applicable to to questions of, of racism and colonialism and you know stretching doesn't mean just throwing it out it means you have to rework it you have to remold it and that's what that's what I think all these figures are doing at this time right in very interesting ways um, for example Stuart Hall picks this up and says this is also what's going on in plantation slavery right you've got a, um, a workforce that is that is unwaged um, uh, on the plantations, but nevertheless is is also integrated into the global capitalist economy, right? Because the um, you know the cotton that's being produced on the fields of Mississippi is then being shipped to uh, Manchester to you know to be um, turned into cloth by waged workers in the north of England, then 
again shipped to somewhere like India to be sold um, in the in a colonial context of of um, monopoly um, capitalism, right? So um, the, there's a kind of way in which that 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 formula that's developed as a as a way of explaining the existence of a structural racism in South Africa can be applied in lots of other contexts as well, and that's I think why these this set of ideas that come out of this milieu becomes incredibly useful you know, for us today in the United States to think through these questions around race and class that we're struggling with politically today. That's really helpful. So, you know, Stuart Hall writes this classic essay, Race, Articulation, Society, Structure, and Dominance. He's responding to Harold Volpe's work on race and class in the apartheid state. And of course, Volpe had escaped apartheid South Africa, made it to London, they were in touch with each other. Um, and then Stephen Anden is the director of the Institute of Race Relations, the editor of the journal Race and Class, where you had also been the editor, you know, major figures as um, intervening in this, in this decisive um, conjuncture. Another figure, of course, was Cedric Robinson, right, who, uh, as you well know, was, was there uh, finishing his book, Like Marxism. You've taken up this... Um, concept to theorize and to analyze the racisms of the border, of counterterrorism, and of the war on terror, and argued persuasively that these need to be understood as part of a broader neoliberal project. And I really wanted to ask you about that, about, you know, how might centering racism, indeed racial capitalism, um, enrich our view of neoliberalism on one hand, and how does it challenge popular or taken for granted um, definitions of the concept on the other? Yeah, so, you know, there's a so much been written about neoliberalism, right? You know, a thousand articles a year or whatever. So, what you, I think, what you see by and large with, with all of that um, scholarly work on neoliberalism is. Um, a systematic downplaying of questions of racism and neocolonialism, right? So um, we can take, you know, David Harvey's kind of, in a, as an example, and, you know, not because he's the only person that does this, but, you know, is representative. Um, the story, you know, we get a standard story of neoliberalism um, uh, that, that we can get from David Harvey, where, you know, the, the neoliberal intellectuals gather together in uh, in Montpellier in in uh, Switzerland um, just after World War Two. They kind of come out with this this philosophy of free markets. Um, they're in the wilderness for you know a couple of decades. They get their opportunity in Chile um, in in the early seventies with Pinochet to 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 try out these new ideas, um, and then um, uh, they you know they they kind of go on to. Um, be the dominant ideas with Thatcher and Reagan in the 80s and, and you know, we create the new neoliberal world, right? Now, when you look at how that story is told, it's told in terms of essentially a class story. Um, it, with someone like David Harvey, it's told in terms of, you know, there was a crisis in the, in the late 60s, early 70s that was about the rising power of the working class in Europe and the United States and neoliberalism was the way that capital kind of responded to that by kind of seizing the opportunity in this moment of crisis to change the rules of the game and, and push back against Keynesianism, welfare state. We know all this, this story, right? 
the what what you know so again we can with fanon we, you know we need to stretch it right we need to stretch it and and that kind of story is only half the story the other half of the story is the crisis was as much a crisis of of race and colonialism as it was a, a crisis of class and of course even putting it like that um doesn't quite capture the ways that those were all intertwined to, with each other right in ways that hopefully i can convey so um if you think for me you know if you look at and start with the um the intellectual level of the kind of neoliberal thought right and you know you can read a lot of commentaries on um people like uh, milton friedman and friedrich hayek never really get much reflection on how they thought about race and, and colonialism as well right so someone like um hayek you know who seems you know if you read if you read most accounts of, ne of kind of neoliberal intellectual history there's certain figures like von Mises who might be thought of as someone who has racial views at certain points um Rupke as well Hayek is presented as the kind of as the kind of one who's freed himself from those older prejudices to kind of give you a neoliberalism that's that's um uh that's more modern in the sense of it's ditched its legacies of, of kind of racial prejudice right from from earlier periods right actually that's not true what Hayek is doing is reworking racism and what he's doing is he's thinking about racism no longer in terms of a kind of 19th century idea of biology but in terms of he's got an idea of cultural evolution right and um, so race is, is there it's just in a new language and a new vocabulary a new set of terms and um, I think that's important because when you look at how neoliberalism then plays out you know as it as we move go through the neoliberal transformation um for me that's in the 1970s um uh it enables us to understand how part of that is a reworking of of structural racism right that have been challenged by on the one hand the black freedom movement in the united states in the uk but you know equally importantly um by the by decolonization right which you know which redraws the map of the world um and um so much of what neoliberals are thinking about through that period is is the what to do about decolonization how can um the um idea they have of the kind of world they want to create now be created in this new context of decolonization right and what they and what their reasoning is is that um the 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 challenge is actually about culture it's first and foremost a matter of culture that for them the so to, to take, take a step back neoliberalism for me is a set of ideas and, and practices that are about um trying to disaggregate mass movements that emerged you know from the late 19th century through the 20th century uh, that aim at redistributing wealth and and how can we disaggregate those movements to stop that from happening right what you're getting then is the need to think about the question of surplus populations both within the united states but also in other parts of the world because what neoliberalism is also doing is is um you know it's a it's a, a form of what marx calls primitive accumulation in other words you are um through privatization of in particular land people who who are still embedded in rural economies where they're dependent on land outside of, of kind of wage labor they're being uprooted and exiled because the land's been privatized from the kind of communal arrangements that existed before it's a kind of new enclosure and 
Um, and so then they're being thrown up as exiles from those rural settings. They're turning up in the cities, but the cities are not able to absorb them into wage work as they were in the development of capitalism in, say, England in the 19th century. Um, so, the, you know, the, the, again, the Marx model doesn't work. Marx's account of primitive accumulation that is based on what happened in England in the 19th century is, is not transposable to thinking about what's happening in a third world setting in the 1970s with primitive accumulation there because there isn't the absorption of these people into a new industrial workforce. And that, it's just not possible. What you get is, a, again, a permanent surplus population of people who, who aren't even able to be exploited according to the way that Marx describes as wage workers, right? You get surplus globally, you get surplus within the United States. And the question then is how, you know, these populations then represent a kind of challenge, a threat, um, uh, uh, an anxiety to uh, neoliberalism because they are um, outside of the systems of market discipline that neoliberalism wants to use to kind of maintain its order, right? Someone who's, who's not in waged work in the United States is not disciplined by market competition over the price of their labor, right? This is where things like broken windows policing starts coming because these are ways to say, well, we need to create some system of pricing in this person's life. It's the pricing of, of um, punishment, right? Of going to prison rather than, you know, being able to discipline them through market in a literal sense, right? And this is where we get things like the war on drugs, the war on, um, the war on terror, um, and so on, as ways of managing these surplus populations around the world, right? And, and actually spaces within which these anxieties about the limits of market logic, the in what in, in their terms are interpreted as the cultural limits of a market logic, um, uh, you know, are worked through in those spaces um, around counterterrorism, around counter narcotics, around um, bordering. Thanks for this, Aaron. You know, your work on racial capitalism and neoliberalism, as you're just saying, a part of your broader research project on uh, counter radicalization, on policing, and on counterinsurgency in both the US and the UK. In 2015, you published the book, The Muslims Are Coming situating the war on terror, its mass surveillance uh, programs, and a much longer history of counterinsurgency. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that argument and how an analysis of the history of counterinsurgency enriches our understanding of policing and prisons. Yeah, well, you know, I spent, um, I spent a year or so uh, traveling around the United States, actually, to different parts of the United States to interview um, like people working on counterterrorism in police departments and uh, FBI agents and um, folks like that. People working in like fusion surveillance centers, right? So, so I was, you know, I was interested in in just kind of how are they framing this work that they're doing on counterterrorism. You know, like what kind, how does the various policies that are out there kind of start to play out through the particular um, local settings that they're in, all those kind of, you know, kind of scholarly questions you might ask about that stuff. And then, you know, what started to come out through all that research, you know, when you're actually talking to these people is, is how, you know, for them, they're part of this global thing. You know, they're part of this global counterinsurgency project. There's no other way to put it. I mean, you would 
you know, I remember going to the um, the FBI field office in in Houston, Texas, right? And you walk in um, to their, you know, they've got one of these one of these. They love their their gadgets and their computers and their big screens and everything, right? And so you go into one of these rooms. They're, I can't remember what they call it. Their control room where you know you, the the skiff where you have to leave. They call it a skiff. You have to leave your cell phone and your electronic devices outside and all that sort of stuff you know and um uh, and you look up at the top of the room and there's the clocks for all the different time zones in the united states but then after that there's a clock for the time zone in iraq and a clock for the time zone in afghanistan so you're like well you know like the very way that you're thinking about your time in this room where you're doing this counterterrorism work is connected to these wars going on in iraq and afghanistan you see yourself as part of this same thing and you know it turns out when you when you talk to these FBI agents who are working on counterterrorism, you know, you know, at least one in three of them have come from a military background. And and when you ask them about that in the interviews, they say, well, what they think they're doing in Houston, Texas is essentially a continuation of what they were doing earlier in Somalia or Yemen or Pakistan or Iraq, right? And you say, well, what, what exactly is that? And they're like, well, um, you know, building relationships with local leaders, um, trying to identify in the in the Muslim community amongst the, the leaders and the people of influence um, you know who's who's the moderates and who's extremists who's the ones who are against us who are the ones for us it's like wait you're saying so you know that on paper what the FBI agent is supposed to be doing is is you know like following leads where there's some kind of indication that that some kind of crime is taking place but no what he's talking about is Karen so that's counterinsurgency right textbook you know so so you understand, and this is, you know, the same is exactly the same is true in Britain, um, in a in a way that's much more overt in the, at the policy level. You know, where where the policy will talk about a um, need to counter um, uh, Islamic radicalism using the same methods in, you know, in in somewhere like Birmingham or Bradford in England with large Pakistani populations, as it would do in in Afghanistan or Pakistan. You know. M.A. Césaire talks about the boomerang, right, of, of um, the practices that were imposed for European colonialism in other parts of the world, then coming back to Europe um, in the form of fascism, right? That's how he understands the origins of fascism, is, is as this kind of boomerang back for colonialism. And in a way, the same is true for, for um, you know, the kinds of um, police violence that we see in the United States. The... Um, indeed, the rise of Trump, in a way, is a is a boomerang back from the war on terror. Um, you know, Trump was in a way just making explicit what was already implicit in the policies of the war on terror, um, with his Muslim ban and so on. Right. So, um, I think it's in, it's crucial that we have that kind of global um, part to our to our analysis. Yeah, I want to ask you too how an analysis of counterinsurgency enriches our understanding of racial capitalism itself. Right. Well, you know, so if we think of if we think of racial capitalism as, um, the, you know, the, the kind of starting point for thinking about racial capitalism, if we think about what we were talking about earlier in terms of South Africa, in terms of Stuart Hall, and this would be true for Cedric Robinson as well, is the idea that um, capitalism doesn't homogenize, it differentiates, right? In other words, um, there isn't this kind of inherent tendency in capitalism to create a single kind of industrial working class, you know, where everyone's abstract labor is interchangeable. It's structured through race, amongst other things, right? 
And so, um, and, and when you get into neoliberalism, where you have these large um, surplus populations who are never brought into the waged parts of capitalism, right? Um, the question then becomes a matter of policing those populations, finding some way to um, uh, impose a kind of market discipline on them that, that isn't done through their employment in wage work, right? So that's where you then get you then get the question of um, firstly racism comes in because racism becomes the way that neoliberalism manages that boundary between these different categories, right? It becomes the way that you manage the boundary between your your kind of um, you know, waged workforce that has certain entitlements and and um, uh, privileges within the kind of core capitalist societies. Then there's a boundary between them and, for example, undocumented migrant workers who are kind of subject to this this um, the authoritarianism of the border um, as a way to control that labour. Um, you know, you have the um, uh, the boundary between the core um, and and the global surplus populations who are kept out through borders, right? Borders again, central, right? So, we, and and that that um, you know that kind of militarized bordering to keep the surplus populations out from being able to enter into the core of capitalism is again a racialized process, right? Um, so so race comes in that way, but all of that is also about um, counterinsurgency because what is the, the the kind of anxiety about these surplus populations is that that they aren't subject to market discipline. That's kind of the key thing for neoliberalism, right? They aren't subject to market discipline. So the only thing that can discipline them is force, right? And the only thing that and the 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 again because as I was saying earlier, it becomes a question. So the political conflict between. Um, uh, you know, neo, the, the neoliberal system and those um, sectors that are opposing it, right? That's a political question, right? Like the mass mobilizations um, of the third world in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, trying to create a different world in the aftermath of, of colonialism, right? The, um, all the mass mobilizations through the 80s and 90s against structural adjustment programs, against the, the new kind of um, global institutions like the WTO that have been created in the 1990s to to institutionalize a kind of neoliberal rule, right? All of those movements, um, which um, you know, Seattle is 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 famous in the 90s as the as this kind of place where the WTO is challenged. But really, you know, that is just one part of this much broader struggle going on around the world in all kinds of ways um, against the IMF, against the World Bank, and so on. All of those movements are in our political opposition to a political system that's being imposed. But they're interpreted by neoliberals in terms of culture, right? So what becomes, so a political antagonism is reframed as a cultural matter. And the argument is, well, it's not that they're politically opposing us, it's that their culture means that they can't adapt to this modern, globalized, neoliberal world that we're trying to create. So. That is one, and, and their understanding of culture is as a fixed kind of um, thing that determines your behavior, your way of life and everything. It's kind of like a quasi-racial way of thinking about culture. 
And so that's the one way that racialization comes in. All those debates about the borders and so on tend to coalesce around ideas of fixed ideas of culture. Um, but it also means, you know, therefore, some kind of counterinsurgent violence is necessary, right, to contain these movements. Um, because, they're, because they're ultimately founded in a kind of cultural problem, right? They're ultimately about a, a cultural inadequacy, which means a racial inadequacy, right? Yeah. No, thanks uh, for this. And, you know, it makes me think about your argument that Islamophobia serves as a form of what Antonio Gramsci called common sense, or kind of taken for granted way of, you know, interpreting and understanding the world. And you take this concept up and extend it to help us understand how it is that Islamophobia has naturalized counterinsurgency. It's displaced an analysis of the political economy of neoliberalism onto the terrain of, of culture, right? And so, you know, I wanted to ask if you could explain that argument and, you know, how does having this analysis of Islamophobia, as you put it, as a structural feature of capitalism, challenge the kind of common sense you know, notion of the term? Um, yeah, so, so, you know, normally when, when we think about something like Islamophobia, in, in the United States at least, um, it's an idea of individual prejudices and intolerance, um, you know, something um, that, that requires education, you know, kind of um, awareness training, that kind of thing, right? Um, we want to do something about including Muslims into mainstream institutions and that kind of language, right? Inclusion, um, inclusion tolerance. And think about the kind of images of, that, that are central to Islamophobia, right? So certain ideas that, you know, the key idea of, of Islamophobia in the United States is that there's something inherent to Islam as a religion that makes you prone to violence, extremism, fanaticism. Something like that. Um, now, you can you know, look through the archives, look through the history. You don't see that in, in the way that Islam is talked about very much at all before the 1970s, right? Where does it start? It starts really around, again, the oil embargo. What happens with the oil embargo is you, you, know, you get this, like, a, moment of of, a moment of crisis in which all kinds of people are are having to um, cut back in their own personal consumption because of the price of oil going up. The price of oil is not subject to market forces according to the economic textbooks. It's actually um, determined in other ways. But it was presented as an example of, well, they're cutting back on supply, so the price needs to go up. You understand supply and demand. You're going to just have to cut your budgets and adjust your life to this new scenario that we're in, right? That was the messaging, right? So it was a way of introducing that kind of neoliberal argument about market forces, prices, and so on. Um, even though the, you know, the, the, in an earlier period, the price of oil could have been set by government policy, irrespective of international circumstances. They chose not to do that. So, so what happens then is, a, you know, that frustration about this um, essentially reduction in your living standard in the United States is um, is then redirected towards the idea of the wealthy Arab sheikh who somewhere in the Middle East is able to manipulate the price of oil and manipulate the world economy. And starting to look a little like some of the kind of anti-Semitic tropes about the Jewish conspiracy and so on, right? 
Um, that and, and in the pages of the um, the journals like Foreign Affairs, the kind of house journal of of U.S. Empire, um, you start for the first time to see these kind of discussions of well, um, what is Sharia? What is jihad? Um, you know, anxiety about the potential of Arabs or Muslims through the fact the you know through the the fact that oil is is a lot of the world's oil supplies are in <laughs> Muslim majority countries that this gives this presents a danger to the system that if there were a kind of Arab political radicalism that got control of the region it could hold the whole capitalist economy to ransom it would be you know um, uh, you know I mean you read foreign affairs at the time they're talking about the potential of Arab radicals to get control of Saudi Arabia and form a Marxist third world alliance with China to, to kind of overthrow capitalism you know it's like that now um, uh, so so Islam becomes folded into this idea of um, a limit to neoliberal markets um, a threat um, the danger that um, and, you know and it gets connected to the Palestinian cause right because it's Palestine that is it's the Palestinian cause that takes the question of our radicalism beyond the level of governments right governments can be dealt with governments you know they will save themselves the Arab governments will will follow the general principles of international relations they are amenable to to um, pressure through uh, you know, through through aid with conditions, for, in the end through military action, you can deal with governments. What you can't do is deal with so easily is a popular insurgency which starts in Palestine from the late 60s after the Palestinians can no longer rely on neighbouring Arab governments to advance their cause and that becomes evident with the, with the 67 war. That's the birth of, of you know, the PLO as a, as a popular insurgency for Palestine, right? So, so the fear of Islam gets tied to the fear of, of a kind of Arab radicalism, which in which is attached to the idea of of the Palestinian insurgency, and it, there's kind of series of displacements there we get. Right, that's where it comes from originally. Right now, what happens in you know in um, we get kind of new iterations of that then developing, especially after the 1979 Iranian Revolution, which you remember calls itself the Islamic Revolution, um, and um, uh, and as in the 1980s you start to get the beginnings of more and more criticisms of Israel in in the United States the kind of the efforts by the Israelis to say to the US public um, look what you when you look at what's happening in Israel and Palestine um, this is not a question of a military occupation and human rights and so on as it was starting to be presented but it's a question of culture it's a question of a Western country like Israel confronting a third world insurgent um, radicalized culture like the Arabs right and and so the problem isn't our politics is their culture it becomes the formula for, for that Israel wants the US public to to adopt in, in thinking about the, the conflict in the Middle East which is starting to become actually important in the United States because the United States is you know in Lebanon and it's funding Israel and so on at this time right so, um, so, and then in the nineties, that becomes generalised, right? So it becomes a matter of saying that there is a problem, not just of of a kind of Palestinian culture or even an Arab culture, but of Islam, right? It becomes a global a, a, a global thing, and you get you get from the neoconservatives, um, you get um, you know quite an open effort on their part to. To say well Islam is going to be the new enemy now that communism is gone we haven't got an enemy we need an enemy to to 
kind of stitch up the social fractures in our own society islam is going to be the new enemy um and and you know and then after a war on terror starts that becomes um you know that idea of, of the clash of civilizations between islam and the west becomes central so too does a kind of liberal version of this which has different kind of a different kind of register but also works through ideas of culture in a current moment marked by a global economic crisis, resurgent nationalisms, the COVID-19 pandemic, the worst refugee crisis since World War II, I've been struck by your argument that the war on terror is unable to shore up the consent that it once did to permanent war. And of course, we can see this through the withdrawal of forces in Afghanistan, uh, calling up memories of the defeat of the United States in Vietnam in the middle of the 1970s. Yet, of course, if you have pointed out, the war on terror persists in 85 countries. And so, you know, can you talk about how it is that the war on terror is able to persist in this political environment and also your argument to be wary of liberal strategies of counterterrorism, particularly around countering violent extremism, including uh, the threat of white nationalist insurgency. I mean, I think what's happened is really that the the kind of rhetoric of the war on terror has has gradually kind of petered out in its ability to kind of engage and mobilize, you know, um, kind of popular engagement around this around around this right and so um and and in a way trump was a death knell for that part of it you know because because the whole thing got folded into into the whole question of of um trump and and people's attitudes towards him and then and then um you know there was it, it, it kind of i mean the war on terror was 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 no longer rhetorically effective as this kind of bipartisan space anymore right it became a it became a a thing that got sucked into Trump. Now, um, uh, at the same time, because all of the, you know, all of that rhetoric that had been mobilised over the years was bound up with all kinds of institutional practices that that are still in place. All that infrastructure globally is still in place. You know, so we we are still conducting war on terror operations in eighty five different countries. Um, we are still. You know, conducting military occupations in various places. We are still um, engaged in um, all the surveillance and all the and all the policing globally that we were before. So that all continues, and it no longer needs the the, the kind of daily assertion of a kind of um, war on terror rhetoric in, politically in order for it to continue, right? We've, we, so, and you know, what's striking to me, I think, about all of this is is. Um, you know, I've been writing about the war on terror since since it began, right? And and kind of throughout that time, saying, look, there's this thing going on that's that's going to be destructive to so many people's lives. Um, it's flawed in all these ways. Here's where it comes from. Here's the analysis. Blah blah blah. You know, um, and you you kind of think that at some point there'll be an end point where you can kind of look back and say. Well, here's the here's the balance sheet of what was done. Here, you know, we can sum up and we can hold accountable. You know, um, to some extent, wars end 
you know, in the past, wars ended and there was some kind of process like that, you know, after World War II in particular. Um, and, and yet in this case, um, the, you know, even though we, and this, you know, this simple fact cannot be <laughs> repeated too often, it, you know, we, we went to war in various countries with no um, moral or legal justification, um, you know, almost certainly resulting in, in well over a million people's lives lost, you know, tens of millions of people becoming refugees. Um, uh, this is a genocidal level of, of war. Um, and um, we, and the, and the people who, who carried it out and who um, uh, were its cheerleaders, you know, just get to carry on doing their thing and move on. You know, they move on to the next gig. Um, and and um, we just haven't begun to, to, to think about what some kind of accountability would look like. And of course, you know, we haven't done a, the accountability for Vietnam. We haven't done the accountability for so many things. Um, but, but right now, you know, the next gig for these people within the national security system is, um, you know, for some of them it's China, but for a lot of them it's the far right, as we were just saying, right? And so what they've figured out is, um, and this is a thing that happened under Trump, they figured out that um, they can, you know, a lot of the stuff that was about kind of counter-radicalization, countering violent extremism that was kind of bubbling up through the war on terror can now be presented as something that is equally applicable to the far right in the United States, right? So, and they might define it as white nationalism, domestic terrorism, whatever terminology they have. And, and so then the question is, is like, do we, do we want to um, see, um, you know, some kind of neo-Nazis or white supremacists um, targeted in the same way that we saw Muslim communities targeted? And kind of like, that's how the question's presented to us, which is not actually how we should think about this, right? So firstly, um, there's no way that, that the thing can just be transposed from one group to another in that way, okay? So, um, you know, the whole way that the, the thing was structured with thinking about counter-radicalization of Muslim communities in the United States was, the logic was, let's, um, there's two kinds of, the logic is this, there's two kinds of Muslims, the moderate Muslim and the extremist Muslim. Um, our job is to distinguish between the two through mass surveillance of all Muslims, right? We need, to, we need to know as much as we can about the lives of every Muslim so that we know whether they're a moderate or an extremist. And the extremist ones are the ones then that we need to target, whether that's through criminalization or, or some kind of other intervention, right? Um, and the moderate Muslims need to be won over in that kind of counterinsurgency style to be our allies in this struggle against the extremists, right? And of course, what counts as being a moderate or extremist is incredibly um, flexible and you are considered an extremist, for example, if you are someone who's critical of the foreign policy of the United States, critical of the war on terror, so dissent gets read as extremism if you're Muslim, right? Um, now, what would it look like to transpose that to the far right, right? In this, in what is the broader community around far right extremism? Is it white people? Are we going to do a thing where like we're, we're winning over white moderates to tackle the white extremists. Are we going to surveil the white people on suspicion of white supremacism? Like, how are we even defining what this looks like? It's just not going to happen, right? This is not, it's not transposable like that. So what you're really looking at is 
um, uh, you know, and this is the proposal coming from, you know, the, all the national security agencies like the FBI and so on. What they're really proposing is um, uh, that we give them the authority to define what white supremacism is um, and to define its remedies, which will mean criminalizing of a, of a small number of people, right? Um, uh, while the rest of structural deep-seated racism in the United States can get ignored, right? Because we can satisfy ourselves that, well, the FBI are dealing with it now, right? The FBI and, and, so, and all, the, all the mobilizations and all the thinking and energy and, and um, uh, efforts that communities have developed for centuries to think about this stuff can now be swept aside as we're all supposed to use the language of, of you know, of the FBI, language like violent extremism or domestic terrorism. This is not the language, really, to dis to describe um, what you know what we're dealing with in the United States, right? What's more is that you know there's just no way that these national security agencies are grappling with the full extent of the far right in the United States and what it really represents. Before we even talk about you know kind of structural racism, just thinking about the far right, you know, talking about um, you know tens of thousands of people involved in armed groups. Who are willing to use violence and intimidation to um, promote, you know, a reactionary agenda, right? And um, this is not something you can you can kind of grapple with simply through thinking about it in terms of a, a criminal justice model of how you're going to deal with these people, right? You need to go way deeper into thinking about where this comes from, right, and what produces it. And again, and the answers are going to be very, in a way, there's a parallel with with understanding the war on terror, like the war. So the mistake that the war on terror made, or one among many, but but the kind of analytical error in the war on terror was um, to think that that what it called terrorism was this thing that was sui generis, that it didn't have any kind of political conditionalities to it, and it wasn't involved in any kind of, and and states themselves weren't. Um, part of the process by which this conflict was constituted, right? So, you know, the war on terror is not a war on terror. The war on terror is a is a military and cultural and political conflict between Western governments and various non-state actors like Al Qaeda, right? Both sides in that conflict are necessary for there to be a conflict. They both co-constitute that conflict together, right? And each side is is deciding when to use violence and what kinds of violence to use based on how it's interpreting the other side in that conflict and its actions. There's a, there's a kind of mutual um, imbrication going on between the two of them. What, what the war on terror does is it says, well, we're going to ignore our own part in this and just think about what they're doing as if it comes from nowhere. You know, and the famous phrase, 9-11 came out of that clear blue sky. No, it didn't. It came out of a history uh, that the US government itself was also involved in. Right to say that isn't to isn't to um, uh, you know to kind of justify violence on either side, but it's just to acknowledge a kind of actual causal process that was there in in terms of how that violence arose. Right now, when you think about the far right, the same is true. That far right doesn't come out of the blue either. Right, it comes out of a history that the state itself is also central to. Right, the far right is in a way is is simply. A, you know, it's a it's a kind of parasite on the state's violence, right? It's simply saying, um, I mean, in a way, what the far right does in the 21st century is simply say, um, you know, we've been told by our own government that there are all these threats out there. You know, there's the threat of um, 
uh, of people crossing our borders. There's the threat of Muslim terrorists. There's the threat of, um, uh, you know, of narcotic gangs. There's the, there's the threat of black radicalism. And we simply agree with our own government. Those are threats. We just don't think the government's doing enough to fight them. We're going to do some fighting of our own. Right? That is the key. That's the kind of bottom line of what the far right are about. Um, and, and so they're being radicalized by their own government. Right? And, and so, so then we want the government to de-radicalize and counter-radicalize them. That's the problem here. Right? Um, I mean, one of the things that's clear here is that you know, the bulk of the far right actually come out of the military, out of the police. One fifth of the people arrested on January 6, 2021, in that siege on the Capitol. Exactly. That was the case, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's important that we have this structural context for interpreting uh, the relationship between racism and counterterrorism. And, you know, one of the things that you do in your forthcoming book, Resistance is Not Enough, um, is to argue that liberal anti-racism has long served to naturalize war, um, torture, mass imprisonment. And you argue instead for a conception of racism that is structural. And trace a conception of structural racism out of radical anti-racist, some of them we've mentioned, like Amy Césaire, but also prominently uh, CLR James. So I wanted to ask if you could reflect on how James's writings can aid us in confronting structural racism in our own time. Yeah, so, and you know, you, we could, what I do in, in the book, or try to do is, is to kind of trace a trajectory that, you know, CLR James is there, um, Césaire, Fanon, Nkrumah, um, you know, Claudia Jones, Jamil Alamine, right? And I try and trace a trajectory of, of what I'm calling radical anti-racism that, that, that is a different trajectory from liberal anti-racism, right? And you can trace that, you know, you could do that in a number of different ways. You know, there's all kinds of other figures that you might want to bring in to, to trace that history, obviously. I'm just somewhat arbitrary, the, the choices I've made. Um, what's, um, what's particularly interesting about CLR James is, in, in relation to this, is um, so the word racism, right, in the English language, first appears in a kind of systematic way in, in 1938, when there's a translation into English published of um, a book in German um, with the title Racismus um, by uh, Magnus Hirschfeld, right? So Hirschfeld was um, uh, a sexologist. Um, he's kind of runs an institute in, in Germany, um, in, in you know, the Weimar Germany, um, uh, researching sex. Um, he's um, a gay rights activist. Um, he's Jewish. Uh, as the Nazis rise to power, they you know kind of shut down his institute, they burn his books, and he's exiled, right? Um, and 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 so um, he writes he writes this book, Racismus, in the nineteen thirties, while he's exiled in France, as a way to understand Nazism, right? And so our, the word racism, you know, comes from there in English, right? It comes from that moment. It's an attempt to understand Nazism. How does he understand Nazism? What he says is, is that there is a set of, of thinkers, you know, in the kind of late, um, uh, uh, nine, in the late 18th century and through the 19th century, thinkers in Europe who develop an ideology that he calls racism, 
which then kind of filters down into everyday consciousness in countries like Germany. Develop, you know, so we're talking about individual attitudes and beliefs, which then um, the Nazis are able to manipulate and exploit in order to make their uh, bid for power. Okay, so it's very much about individual attitudes and beliefs, um, and that that's translated into in 1938. Now, in the same year in 1938, C.L.R. James is using the word racism as well, right? In his journalism, um, he's writing about racism as uh, uh, a thing that he's seeing in colonialism in Africa, right? And where he's writing about racism is, um, it's about how land, labor, rights are structured according to kind of informal rules um, that, de that, that determine how that society allocates those things. Um, and so it's a structural idea of racism, right? So, so, um, what happens is is that um you know that that kind of liberal version of what racism is becomes it kind of becomes central to um the it's by the end of world war ii it's become a, a kind of part of the us's own kind of official um public messaging about the about why it's fighting world war ii right that kind of anti-nazi argument about racism as this set of ideas um, yeah, so then that I, that liberal idea of of anti-racism gets picked up by people like Franz Boas, Ruth Benedict, Gunnar Medal, becomes the kind of um, dominant way of thinking about what racism is and how to fight it um, in the United States. Um, you know, through subsequent decades, um, uh, right up to you know in the last few years with Trump, um, you know that becomes the framework again for how we understand what Trump was. Right, um, the idea that that he's this kind of charismatic leader who's manipulated these kind of racial attitudes that are out there. And it's, and, you know, the way to tackle it is through, um, you know, trying to counter these ideas, right? Um, what, you know, what you will have then alongside that in this other tradition, this kind of radical tradition is a way of, of trying to think about what it might mean to talk about structural racism, right? Um, part of the reason that, you know, part, one of the impetuses for writing the book is, is everyone was talking about structural ra racism in 2020. You know, like all the big corporations putting out statements saying we oppose structural racism. No one could say what it was, right? Like, and, and people who did say what it was, their, their way of talking about what structural racism was was simply to say, it's like when there's a lot of racism amongst individual attitudes, right? It's like actually basically still that liberal idea of anti-racism, right? Like we need to, we need to kind of just do a lot more of persuading other people to be less racist in their ideas, right? What the radical tradition says is something different, which is, you know, Fanon, for example, makes this argument, which, which seems to me crucial today, which is um, a society can be racist without any, you know, without the majority of people in that society being racists, right? <laughs> like, it's a structure. It doesn't require every individual person in that society to believe in it. In fact, in that kind of setting, which is how Fanon talked about colonial Algeria, right, um, and the racism of colonial Algeria. What he's saying is, is even then, in that kind of setting, um, the majority of people uh, amongst the white settlers in Algeria aren't racists in the sense that they've signed up to some belief system. Um, there's a minority who are. They're the they're the honest ones because they at least acknowledge the basis on which that society operates. 
right? The liberals who who don't are are out are out of step with the very structures of their society that gives them the privileges they enjoy, right? Um, and that's the situation in the United States today, right? So so this this other tradition, I think, um, offers us a way of, of um, making sense of of what we're up against today. Um, it's um, uh, you know the question then becomes well what is that structure right and that's where I think then the the ideas about racial capitalism come in and can can help us understand that um, in other words the structure in structural racism is precisely this this relationship between um, uh, the capitalist mode of production and other modes of production in the same social formation or those parts of the social formation that that are kind of surplus to the core capitalist part right it's that that that, that um, boundary that that generates structural racism, right? Um, in the way that Stuart Hall, I think, still gives us the best description of it. Um, so the book tries to tries to develop that argument and apply it to um, how we might understand um, uh, what we're up against today um, in all those infrastructures of bordering, of policing, of incarceration, of war on terror, counter narcotics, and so on. Well, thank you very much for sharing this preview of the book, Resistance is Not Enough, Radical Anti-Racism in the Neoliberal Age. And thank you for joining me for Conjuncture, and it's been really a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks very much, Jordan. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank our viewers and our listeners for joining us for this episode of Conjuncture. Please stay tuned.